And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's the verse that people misquote. And they misstate, they just, they get the wrong verse. They take that verse and they misunderstand it. And they say, well, the Bible says that God won't give you more than, than you can handle. I'm going to see if I can mess with this for just one second, okay? Because I think this will save us a lot of grief. The Bible never actually says that, it, 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 you know, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. I don't know about you, but I have been, I have been given, in a sense, through the world or whatever, however you want to put it, in my life, I've been given more than I can take sometimes. And I think every one of you would say the same thing. Yeah, you know, I, I am, I've been given more than I can handle, more than I can bear sometimes. And so we need to be careful when we are, when we are looking at Scripture that we... Uh, let me see if I can move it around. Sorry, guys. We're going to switch over here. Exactly. Doesn't bother me. I'll do a tap dance now. Didn't. Didn't. All right. Um, let me tuck my shirt in just for a second here. All right. Oh, so where were we? Where I was, I was, I was lamenting about how that song is not correct, and it's not correct. That God will. It doesn't. It never says in the Bible that God will not give you more than you can handle. I mean, there's some nuances there, but you know, we got to make sure that we don't build our worldview on false information. Because that causes, that, that breeds confusion in our lives. It breeds frustration. And in this case, it also breeds guilt. Because how many people do you know, and maybe you yourself, have, been, have gone through something in life that was so overwhelming, and you feel guilty because you think you're, giving, you're, you're getting more than you can handle because you actually are. You're only human. You're a human being. Frail human being. You look at, you read through the Old Testament, even the New Testament, okay? These guys and these women, in many cases, were given way beyond what they could, in a sense, take or handle. So we got to be careful. We got to be careful with that. Now I want to talk to you about a man who was given more than he could take, more than he could handle. But what he did was the right thing. He did the right thing in his situation. He did exactly what someone should do when they face this type of situation. When last we saw Jonah, he was being grabbed by the seat of the pants and the scruff of the neck and thrown overboard over the ship into the, into the ocean. And he's down there drowning. We pick up his story in Jonah chapter 2. It says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple." The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up out of the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, O Lord. And my prayer rose to your holy temple.
Bible. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of, of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And that's where we find Jonah sitting here on this dry land. Now, we find Jonah as we're going through this sermon here in inside the belly of a large fish that God had sent to swallow him up. And in this situation where Jonah finds himself, he cries out to the Lord as he's thrown overboard. He cries out to the Lord. Smart man. Smart man. He realizes that he is in a situation that he can't handle. He realizes he's in a situation that's way over his head, no pun intended, but he's way over his head on this one, and he cries out to the Lord. It's exactly what he should do. As I was writing this sermon, I started to wonder to myself, I wonder, I wonder when he realized that he was being saved and not eaten. Did you ever think about that? Like, you're tossing the ocean. It's not like God said, now I'm going to send a large fish to swallow you. I mean, the fish just came up and swallowed him. So I wonder when, in Jonah's mind, he realized that he was being saved and not eaten. But whatever that point was, I'm sure he was a very, very happy man. Can you just say, he grabs him by the seat of the pants, they throw him overboard, he hits the water, he's going down, he's drowning. He's like, oh, I'm drowning. Oh, I should have never run away. I'm drowning. Oh, no. Oh, wait. Wait. Oh, I'm being eaten by a huge fish. Oh, what do I do? I'm going to be swallowed and consumed. This is the end of my life. I should have never run away from the Lord. Wait. Wait, I'm inside this huge fish. It smells nasty. But it's... But it's not, it's not that bad. This is good. This is good. And I, as I was going through the sermon, I remember an old Norwegian proverb that says this. Bad is good when worse happens. Bad is good when worse happens. You know, in your own life, you see that. I see that in my life. Bad is good when worse happens. You're thinking, oh, I'm drowning. Oh, I'm being eaten. Oh, this, is not, this isn't so bad. It's kind of nasty. I'm kind of like filled with all whatever it is. But uh, nah, I can, I can handle this. Just a few paragraphs earlier, he, he, is, he is running away from God. And now we find Jonah crying out to God for help. You know, he gets himself in, in this horrible situation and then he cries out to God to help him out of this horrible situation. Sound familiar to anyone? I won't have you raise your hands, but I'll raise mine. Sounds familiar to me. I mean, how many of us do the exact same thing? God puts Jonah in a situation where he has no alternative but to change his heart, to change his attitude, to change his perspective and look to the Lord. That's what God wants from all of us, that we would look to him. When we go through the challenging circumstances of life, we look to him. When we get our lives off course, God is going to do what God needs to do because he loves us to put us back on course. When we go through the challenges of life that we can't handle, God is there to give us strength. People face challenges all the time that they can't handle. And you ask yourself, well, how do they overcome it? How do they get through it? How do they get through it? They depend on. They have faith in. They have belief and faith and trust in the one who can handle it. There's the difference. There's the difference. They trust. They have faith in the one who can handle it. That's what God wants from us. Like in Jonah's case, when we rebel against God, we, he often lets us hit rock bottom. 
so that we turn our focus back to him. That is not unloving. That is a loving thing to do. Since he walked away from God, Jonah, Jonah's story basically has been one of descent. Think about it. Descent as in going down. Since he walks away from God, Jonah's story has been one of descent. You think about this in, as, as, you read, as you read the chapters. Jonah went down to Joppa. And then jo- Jonah goes down below deck on the ship. And then finally, Jonah goes down into the depths of the sea. Down, down, down. When we walk away from God, when we run from God, that's what happens. Our story, our personal story, becomes one of descent and descent and descent. We go down and down and down. This is, this, this is where Jonah finds himself, at the lowest point in his life. And he acknowledges that God has put him in that place. It is God's doing. God brought him to the lowest place in his life. God did it. God brought him to this place. God loves us so much. Listen to me. He loves us so much that he will allow trouble to come into our lives if he knows it's it's what's best for us. God loves us so much that he will bring trouble into our lives. If that's what it takes to turn our life around, to wake us up. Some people need a wake-up call. And God loves us so much that he's not going to let a person continue to go down and descend and descend and descend. He's going to do something to shake them out of that. To have them realize, wait, wait, where? You know, some people get themselves in a fantasy world sometimes and they they can somehow separate themselves from their relationship with God and they descend down and God says, no, 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 I'm going to wake you up. So he causes trouble to come into our lives. Now, some people right now are thinking, that doesn't make any sense to me. That doesn't make any sense. And the reason you're saying to yourself it doesn't make any sense is because there's, again, theologically, there's some confusion. There's a misconception. I hear people all the time, Christians, non-Christians say it constantly. Christians are starting to say it all way too often. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Their theology is one of God wants me to be happy. Anything that happens in my life that makes me unhappy can't come from God. Because, of course, God wants me to be happy. You're going to get married to the wrong person. I can point out in Scripture why you shouldn't get married to this person. There's all unequally yoked and blah, blah, blah. And the answer always comes back as I hold my Bible up and read them exact passages of why they shouldn't do it, very clear and concise. And they come back to me and say, well, God, doesn't God want me to be happy? And I can answer that question real, in a very simple way. It's a very simple answer. God wants me and you to be holy, to be conformed to the image of Christ. He wants us to be holy. If in your desire and your attempt to become more holy, that makes you happy, then God wants you to be happy. But if, 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 you're, if you're comparing God wants me to be happy, God wants me to be holy, God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be holy. That's his concern for our lives. That's a simple thing. And here, here's where I think we're getting confused as well. We're, we're theologically mixing things up. Theology is very, very important. You think, well, I'm not a theologian. I don't understand. Well, it's very important that you don't believe things like God won't give you more than you could handle, which is nowhere in the Bible. Okay, it's very important that you realize that nowhere it says, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Yes, God wants us to be happy. Of course, he wants us to to find to find. But here's what he wants. And here's what you want. And here's what I want. And here's where you get confused, because from a theological standpoint, 
God, you, you want in your heart, the, the hole in your heart, what you're missing, what you're longing for as a believer in Jesus Christ is peace, joy, and contentment. That's what you're really looking for. Peace, joy, and contentment. What happens is we get confused and replace peace, joy, and contentment with the word happiness. But they're not the same. They're not the same. Can I, I'm happy a lot. But my happiness is based on my outward circumstances usually. It, it, it's an external thing. If, I, if I'm standing in front of talking to you, I'm happy. If I win the lottery, I'm going to be happy. I, I don't play the lottery, but I'll tell you, you know, if someone else buys me a ticket and I win the lottery, I'm going to be happy. I'm not going to worry about it. If God wants to say, hey, you shouldn't play the lottery, I'm like $300 million richer and I use it for the Lord, I'll figure it out later on. But I'm, I'm going to be happy if, if someone splits the lottery with me, okay? Um, uh, I'm going to be happy if I catch a, a six-pound bass next time I go fishing. I'm going to be happy. Now, if, I get a, if I'm catching the thing and it comes and the hook comes loose and catches me in the face, I'm not happy anymore. Happiness are based on outward circumstances. Peace, joy, and contentment come from inside. It's something that the Holy Spirit does within us. And regardless of what happens in your outward circumstances, you cannot take away someone's peace, joy, and contentment. We get confused. We have a wonderful country, and it's, you know, the pursuit of happiness. And I understand that. I'm not criticizing. Please don't think I'm criticizing. All I'm saying is that that's your goal in life, the pursuit of happiness. You're going to fall way short. What you really want, my friends, what you're really longing for is that peace, that joy, and that contentment that cannot be taken away from you regardless of your outward circumstances. We get confused, and because we get theologically confused with all those things, it causes all kinds of confusion and grief and, and, and guilt and all, all these things in our lives. It's important to understand what's truth and what someone made up, like, you know, godliness is next to cleanliness, all that kind of stuff, or God helps those who help themselves. And I hear people say that sometimes. God helps those who help themselves. Well, chapter and verse, it's, it's not in there. But people will use it because they've heard other people say it. You know, sometimes, sometimes what's actually best for me, what's actually best for me is that God would strip everything else away from me. If I'm going in the wrong direction, if you're going the wrong direction, what's best for you is that God would strip everything away from you because then all you can do, all you have is to cling to him. And that's what he wants. He wants you to cling to him because this life will throw at you things that you can't handle, things that you can't take, things that will make you break. And God is saying, when those things come, you need to be close to me because I will get you through them. In, in my strength, I will get you through those things. So some of the times, sometimes it's best that God strips away everything. And when God, and maybe for you this morning, you're saying to yourself, that's where I am. I feel like God has stripped everything away from me. Now the question is, what are you going to do about it? What, how are you going to respond when God strips everything away from you? Well, Jonah's response, we find in verses 5 through 7, Jonah's response is this. He, he, he begins to pray. When all is stripped away, when he has nothing left, he begins to pray. The engulfing waters threaten me. The deep 
the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. He begins to pray. He begins to cry out to God. That's what he should do. You know, people handle... People handle crisis in different ways. They handle crisis in many different ways. I have seen people who've been through things that boggle my mind, things that I'm not sure I could, you know, from the outside looking in, you'll understand this. I don't care if I'm a pastor. I've been a, I've been a pastor for years. I've been a Christian for, since, since, you know, early 80s, it, in 1980, okay? But I watch some people go through some things, and I think, man, could I handle that if, if that was put in my life? And I watch people handle things that are so difficult with such incredible grace. They cling to God. They call out to God. They hang on to God. And their relationship to God grows stronger and stronger and stronger through the difficulty, through what they've been through. And you're sitting back going, how is that possible? They get a peace that passes all understanding. There's a joy and a peace and contentment that God gives them from within. And you're like, that is just mind-boggling. You've all seen that at people's funerals or in difficult situations or someone facing a, 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 a dreadful disease. You've seen people stand up under it in amazing ways and hang on to the Lord. I've also seen people in similar situations to that who shake their fist at God and they want nothing to do with them and they walk away from God. They walk away from God in their anger and their frustration. They blame God. You know, what happens sometimes is we go through a difficulty in life and, and, uh, and basically we make choices. We choose. The Bible says do this and people do the opposite. And then they blame God. They blame God and they refuse to change the behavior that got them to where they are in the first place. They're angry with God. They're saying, God, how can you do this to me when they themselves chose that behavior and they refused to change the behavior that put them in the circumstance in the first place? Well, when faced with a crisis, Jonah does the right thing. He, he does the right thing. He, he returns to God. He comes back to the Lord. He, instead of running away, he runs and he hangs on. He's just crying out to God. He does the right thing. He does exactly what he should do. And the reality is, my friends, there was nothing else for him to do. And sometime God, sometimes God wants to put us in a situation where the only thing we can do is reach out to him. There's no other alternative. G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite writers. And G.K. Chesterton said this, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. But in heaven's name, to what? The tendency when you go through a difficult time, Satan says, well, if, if you know, if God's doing this and you, and you should do this and you, you get poured into your mind and you do the wrong thing. But the reality is if you, conscious, if you consciously think it through and you spiritually think it through and you logically think it through, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. But in heaven's name to what? Where are you turning? God says, turn to me. When you get more than you can handle, when you get more than you can take, whether it, come, where, it doesn't matter where it comes from, you hold on to him. How do you respond in your own life when you face a crisis? crisis? How do you respond? How do, how do you deal with it? What is your first response or what is your overall response when you face a crisis? One response 
is to cling to worthless idols. You go through something difficult and you start grabbing anything you can. You know, you do all these other things before you turn to God. You cling to worthless idols. Verse 8 says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. They're clinging to worthless idols. Sometimes we cling or we, we, we trust in our money or our skill or our strength or our wit, our intellect, our own, our own, our own, you know, our own hard work whatever you want to call it. But if you put those things before God and you hang on to the cling to those things, I'm telling you what you're doing, you're clinging to worthless idols. They are not going to get you what you desire. They're not going to bring you where you need to be. They're worthless idols. God wants to rescue us his way. He wants to do it his way. If we trust anything else, the Bible says here in chapter 2, that we forfeit the grace that could be ours. God in his amazing grace can do things in your life that you can't do on your own. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps in some situation. You can't do... Let me tell you something. And I, maybe, maybe, maybe you never felt this way, but you ever try to dig down really deep and find there's nothing there? Dig down inside yourself really deep. You just, you know, you're going through all these things one after another. And sometimes, uh, maybe it's just me. You dig down and you know what you find? Nothing. You don't have anything else to give. You're exhausted. You're emotionally, physically, and spiritually completely spent. You're exhausted. You're at a, you've passed a breaking point. And you dig real deep and you don't find anything. That's where God is saying, why are you clinging to worthless idols and forfeiting the grace that could be yours? I have what you need. I have the strength that you don't have. I can bring comfort where where you can't comfort yourself. I can help you get through what you can't get through yourself. Those who cling to worthless idols, who grab at every other option before they go to God, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Only God has the power to help us in our darkest moments. Only God. Only God has the power, the strength, what you need in your darkest moments. It is His strength. That is at work within us that allows us to overcome the things that, that, that we can't handle, that we, can't, we, we just can't seem, to, we can't seem to bear up under. In 1 John 4, 4, it reminds us, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. When I reach down and I find nothing, you know what? I, sh- I'm, I should be reaching for the Lord. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. There's nothing the world can throw at me that God can't handle. And if I know, if I just surrender myself to that truth, if I surrender myself and say, I am weak, but when I am weak, then you are strong. That's the, that's the whole idea. When I am at my weakest, God is at his strongest. I submit myself to his power, to his strength. Philippians 4.13 tells us, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. I don't need to have to, I don't want to. I don't want to handle everything that life's going to throw at me. I don't want to think of all the things that could happen in my life. I have so many things that I cherish in my life. So many things that are important to me, and rightfully so. And the thought of losing any of those things is overwhelming. I don't want to stand around and think, well, God won't give me more than I can handle. God won't give me more than I can take. 
I want to know if something happens that I can't handle, if something happens that I can't take. God in his power is going to give me a peace that passes all understanding. God, I'm going to draw strength from Jesus Christ that I didn't even know I could, that I didn't even understand. And that God, that that greater is he that is in me, that is living in me than he that is in the world. I don't want to do it all myself. I don't want to pull myself in my own bootstraps. I don't want to go through the next 40 years of my life thinking it depends on me. And if I somehow can't handle it, I got to feel guilty because everybody else can handle it. Because God's not going to be more than I can handle. You all know it's true, too, because you've been through it. When people say that, you're wondering, and I'm not, I, you know what, I'm not bashing anyone who says it because it's said so much that we all just kind of, it just happens, we, you know, and we don't mean anything negative by it. We're, we're really, I think what a lot of people are saying when they say that is what I'm describing to you. I think that's what they mean. But I think if it's not explained, people are really confused and they wonder, well, gosh, I, I don't see that in my own life. The language in in chapter 2, in these verses, tells us that Jonah was familiar with the form of a psalm. And you could figure that out. I mean, David writes those psalms and he's just crying out to God. And we find here that Jonah is familiar with the form of a psalm. As he writes, writes, Jonah is giving us a graphic account of what happened when they pitched him into into the water, when they threw him overboard. He's giving us this graphic account of of what's happening after, after, after that transpires. Scattered throughout this psalm, he's praising God. He's praising God. He's thanking God for not allowing him to drown. God saved him from drowning. He's thanking God for, for, because he knows God is the one who's, who rescued him. It is God's doing. And, and from the things that Jonah says, he seems, as we go through this, you think about it, as you read chapter 2, in chapter 1, he's like, oh, you know, he closes his mind off. I don't want to hear from God. I'm going to get on this boat. And he told me to go northeast. I'm going to go southwest. I don't want anything to do with this. I hate Nineveh. And so God's doing something I don't like, and I'm not going to listen to him. In chapter 2, we see a completely changed man, don't we? Totally changed heart, totally changed attitude. Seems like there's a transformation that's taking place in his life. Jonah becomes extremely spiritual from inside the fish. Wouldn't we all? Right? I'm telling you, when you're hitting rock bottom, when there's nowhere else to turn, and you're inside the fish, and you know what I'm talking about, when you're inside the fish, you become very spiritual. You know, you are just, you know, God is everything and you, you know, you, you know, uh, you know, to, I, you're to your holy temple and you just, you're just using all these spiritual language and he's crying. And I don't question, I honestly, before God, do not question the man's heart here or his motives. He's inside a fish. God has saved him. He's got this psalm. He's, he's crying out to the Lord and saying, I, I don't, I don't question the, the sincerity of what he's saying. He, he seems to be a very changed man. But how often for us, I'll put the burden back on us, how often do we run from God, do what we want, uh, not listen to God's calling or his command, and then when things go south on us, we call out to God for help? We do the same thing. We do the same, I, I, I do the same thing. You do, we, all, we all do the same thing. At different points in our lives, God calls us, he commands us, you know, we do our own thing, we kind of run away here, we do, and... and, and and then all of a sudden, things are not going the way we planned. And then we call out to God for help. Jonah, though, finishes on a high note. 
He says, salvation comes from God. Salvation comes from God. I have no doubt that Jonah understood, as I study this, I have no doubt that Jonah understood these truths before this incident took place. I have no doubt in my mind that this prophet of God knew these truths that he's talking about in chapter 2, somehow forgot in chapter 1, but firmly remembered in chapter 2, that he knew these truths before this incident happened. But, but now he's experienced, he has truly experienced it in a very powerful way. Through, through all of this, Jonah learned a very important lesson. God has saved him. By his grace, God has saved him. Now maybe Jonah can go to Nineveh and preach to the people who all are clinging to these worthless idols. Now maybe he's in a situation, God has renewed his mind and got him thinking in the positive direction and, 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 and remi- actually reminded him of what he already knows. Now maybe Jonah's ready to go to Nineveh. Now maybe he's ready to show the grace Show these people the grace that could be theirs if they would only turn and worship the one true and living God. This chapter closes with Jonah being basically spewed up on the beach by this, by this enormous fish. When I was writing this sermon, I started thinking to myself, there's a huge difference between knowing the truth and living the truth, isn't there? And there is such a huge difference between having intellectual knowledge of the word of God, hearing it before in a Bible study or hearing it from the pulpit or, you know, reading it yourself. There's a big difference between knowing the truth and actually living the truth. All the things that Jonah said while he was inside this fish, all the things that he said were things, that, again, that he already knew. He, he already knew these things. He knew them before he actually got onto the boat. This was nothing new to the man. He understood. He, under, he understood. But even though he knew it, he didn't live it. Even though he understood it, he still ran away from God. I think, again, I think we're a lot like Jonah. I, I really do. We know the truth, but we don't always live it out. We understand the grace of God and that we were saved by the grace of God, but we don't always express that in our lives. We don't, we don't always, we don't always you know, express it the way we should. We don't show it through our actions. I have a, I have a simple question for, for all of us, for all of us here. Do we live out the knowledge we already have? Are you living out the knowledge you've already received? That's an important question. I think the answer is no for, for almost everyone. Are we living out the knowledge that we already have? Jonah knew this already, but when his emotions took over, do not let your emotions dictate your actions. Do not let your emotions dictate your actions. Jonah let his emotions dictate his actions, not what he already knew to be the truth. As we close, I have one more point I want to address. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus compares himself to Jonah. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus compares his death and resurrection to the experience that Jonah had gone through. We talked about this a little bit, a little bit last week. When this kind of things happen, 
Theologians call the, the former event a type of the latter. Okay, when something happens, like Jonah being swallowed up three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, when something like this happens, the theologians will call this event a type of a latter event, a later, a later coming event. And that's what, we, that's what we have here. We also get the word prototype or typical from the same, from the same origin. Anyway, the point is that, that Jonah could be viewed, is viewed as a type of, of Christ, of a type of Jesus. He is, a, he is a type. Basically, what Jonah did foreshadows in some ways what Christ would do centuries later. So we can see that. It's important. This is very important because as you read through the Old Testament, there's not a disconnect between Old and New Testament. We can see if we're really looking, if we're reading, you can see it woven together. And Jonah had three days and three nights. Even if Jesus didn't say that, you can draw that conclusion that Jonah was a type of, of Christ. And this suggests that what happened to Jonah was not an isolated incident to be studied on its own. But instead, it has meaning in the wider context of the whole Bible. And sometimes we read things in isolation and we miss some of the most, some of the most incredible things in the Bible. We kind of miss it because we read things in isolation. Well, this just pertains to this and this just pertains to that. If you go back a couple of weeks when Beth was here, she was kind of running through some of those things and your, your mind's going, oh, oh, ah, oh, that's cool. Oh, I never recognized that. It's all throughout the Bible. This is another example of it. Jonah is a type of Jesus. We cannot read this in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a contextual place where we, 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 we compartmentalize it and leave it there. We need, to leave it, we need to read it in a broader context. It shows us that all of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, point us to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Old and New Testament point us to one, one focal point, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus and what did he do and how did he do it when he was here? While Jonah was in this great fish, he could say, he could honestly say with confidence that salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. And think about it. He has no idea how right he really is. He has no idea how, how truly correct he really, really and truly is. This story teaches us. It teaches us the true meaning of grace. And it helps us understand that, when we, that, that, that we don't have to be strong enough. It teaches us that we don't have to be strong enough as long as we're serving, as long as we're following the one who is. Much better theology. So now with God's help, Jonah finds himself on a beach and it's time to go to Nineveh. And just when you thought this story couldn't take any wilder twists and turns, it does. And I'll tell you how next week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time we can spend together, Lord. And I pray that, that your truth would fall on our hearts the truth that we don't have to be strong enough because we have you that through your strength and through your power we can overcome all things 
Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can give our lives to you and that you hold those lives in your hand. And that regardless what we face, regardless what the world throws at us, regardless of how difficult the circumstances seem to be, that we have one who can overcome. May our faith and our trust rest only in you, not in ourselves and not in anything else, but only in you. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. A couple of real quick things before you leave. Number one, happy Father's Day once again. There are some tomato plants out in the foyer on your way out. Make sure you grab one of those for our, for our tomato Father's Day a gift and also for our tomato contest. Uh, and also, um, next week is uh, the move up for our children's ministry. You'll be moving up. So if you have kids, they're, the, they're kind of in the next grade. Okay? Just to let you know that. Have a wonderful week.